0: And welcome to my podcast. I'm Bernard Hickey on the Kaka. It is Thursday, the 10th of February. Today, I wanted to talk about misinformation, the anti vax and anti mandate protests, and what we should do, if anything, about those protests and the broad problems we're having now with misinformation that is being hyperventilated amplified around our society i've had enough this week uh, for the last two days anti-vax and anti-mandate protesters have been occupying parliament's grounds blocking the streets with parked cars all around parliament abusing on uh, onlookers and bystanders Throwing eggs at students who are masked, abusing um, vaccinators in uh, chemists, uh, threatening to kill journalists and politicians, parading nooses around and placards that talk about killing and uh, uh, executing politicians and people, spitting at journalists, shoving reporters. Scenes and things like I've never seen in 35 years of covering protests in Wellington, Auckland, Sydney, Canberra, not in Singapore, they don't do protests in Singapore, Uh, London, New York. I've seen all sorts of uh, Occupy Wall Street, Waitangi Day, Foreshore and Seabed, Anti-Nuclear, Climate Change anti-abortion, protests, and I've never seen anything like this. It's been vitriolic, nasty, dangerous, and completely out of tune with what I imagined New Zealand's political democratic life is like. Something has changed. Now, it's taken me a long time to come to this decision, A, um, because... A lot of stuff happens that's just noise, and you don't want to take it too seriously, particularly when people are clearly uh, um, not in full ownership of all the facts. But in this case, we have tens of thousands, clearly, going by the numbers at the various protests around the country, who believe in their bones after doing their own research on the internet, after gazillions of sharing and liking and reading of articles that have come out of um, uh, non-mainstream news sources, going into Reddit channels, Facebook groups, Telegram groups, whatever it is, to try to understand or to be radicalised into thinking that These vaccines, which have saved the lives of hundreds of millions of people over the last two years, which have been delivered in their billions with extremely low complication rates, are somehow a threat to life and liberty and the ongoing operation of society. This is clearly wrong, and it's dangerous. Previously, I've I've seen this as a inconvenient cost of a democracy and of, frankly, a whole bunch of people who uh, don't understand science or how the political system works and are letting off steam and will just fade away into the background. For Like a lot of people, uh, I have um, pretty much ignored this and waited for it to go away. No more. And the thing that me over the edge after five years of seeing the sorts of online abuse and radicalised nastiness thrown at some of the reporters that I've employed and worked with, not to mention some of the nasty stuff that gets thrown at various politicians, and in particular the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern on her Facebook Live feeds and in many other places, I think we actually have to Take another look at this and see it for the existential threat to our national health and security. Now, that may seem a slightly over the top and extreme thing to say, and I'm happy for people to have a crack at me on that. Uh, but remember, there were some people who were saying similar things in 2015 and 2016 in the lead-up to the Brexit vote and in the lead-up to the election of Donald Trump as US President. The arrival of smartphones from 2010 onwards has fundamentally changed the neural networks in our democratic debate in the West. We have allowed, and actually in some cases encouraged, the social media platforms, and here I'm talking particularly about Facebook and Google's YouTube, which is what most of the public are using. And you can talk about TikTok and Telegram and Twitter um, and Instagram. But on the whole, it is Facebook and YouTube, which is the main vehicle by which many people now get a lot of their information and in entertainment and debate And the way that both of those platforms have set up their algorithms has changed the nature of our national conversation in a fundamentally dangerous and toxic way. Let me explain. Uh, I I know a little bit about this because for the last 20 years I've been working as an online publisher and that means building businesses, And publishing systems which are designed to uh, be easily accessible, indexed by Google, distributed via social media and Google and the internet, basically. So I tried to understand how the internet works, so to speak. About 2012, I realized that the game was over for news sites uh, funded by online advertising, because Google, in particular, through its search platforms and YouTube and Facebook had effectively become the Internet, particularly from an advertising point of view, but in many cases from a usage point of view. In some parts of the world, uh, in countries in Africa, the Philippines, India, uh, effectively Facebook, in particular, is the Internet. And for a lot of people who now work in business here, uh, distributing information, trying to market to customers, Facebook is the internet. And when you look at the uh, surveys from New Zealand On Air about what people actually watch and use in their daily lives for entertainment and information, particularly for younger people, but not exclusively, they are spending most of their digital time, and we're talking about hours each day, watching YouTube, but a bit of Netflix, using Facebook, Instagram, and these other social media platforms. That's where people are getting their information from. I know it seems strange to those who may have grown up in a world of newspapers and radio and television, and I'm one of those. But uh, this is the way the world is now, and it's becoming increasingly dangerous because the way these tools work is to build a set of rules, an algorithm, which promotes and spreads the most engaging content. We used to call it in the world of online publishing, engaging content. What that means is something that spikes your emotions, gets your endorphins and those bits of bits of your brain that produce the fun chemicals going. The ones that make you angry. The ones that make you laugh. The ones that get you excited. The ones that, that you're going to hit, like, or share. Or maybe even subscribe. Because it perhaps uh, reinforces your previous view. It allows you to identify who you are to your mates, to your group, to try to spread your views in some way to the rest of the world, to express yourself by defining yourself as part of one particular group. It allows you to perform as well as to spread information. And that's meant that the algorithms, particularly for YouTube and for Facebook, have hyperventilated the most extreme information and debate. So a, a long extended... On the one hand, this. On the other hand, that pros and cons article. One that tries to engage with people's intellect and with their humanity. They are not going to be spread around <laughs> on Google's YouTube and Facebook. The ones that shout at you, that get you angry, that allow you to go, Aha! See, I was right! Right! even if you haven't read the full article, but you've shared it into your networks, those are the ones that get hyperventilated and hyper distributed into New Zealand's 4 million or so news feeds for Facebook and also for YouTube to a lesser extent. That means a whole bunch of people who, before 2010 really, which is when the smartphones really took off because, by the way, uh, the Apple 4 iPhone was the first to have a front-facing camera and a high data connection speed to finally endemic and relatively cheap 4G networks. That's when the use of smartphones to scroll away our lives really got going. So we're talking about a 12-year period, which is which is in the grand sweep of political history, is a very short time. But in that time, it has changed our neural networks and the key ingredient, the key tool, that has allowed people who normally would stand on soapboxes on the corner of the public square and shout into the void, being ignored by those who walk past, is that those shoutings are now placed into the news feeds of potentially millions and millions of people and then hyperventilated around and around. That's how the internet, Facebook in particular, but also YouTube works. Those others, very few people, real people actually use them, Twitter and the likes, but they can also be, also be <laughs> equally toxic. And of course there's a a, a co-dependency between the mainstream media and these social media platforms now because that's the only way really to distribute to people online so what did we end up with a hyperpartisan, partisan angry political debate all around the world where issues which previously wouldn't have um, penetrated the body politic of New Zealand for example Black Lives Matter or uh, Trump's various complaints, uh, those things are now part of our political debate in ways that we would never have imagined 10 years ago. For example, the um, Black Lives Matter marches of a couple of years ago now were absolutely enormous in New Zealand, effectively following on from a uh, uh, public wave of um, protest and anger about what happened uh, in America's largest cities where uh, black people were murdered by police. And rightly, um, the anger and the outrage swept around the world. The same could be said on the other side of the equation, to the point where, I'm told, because I don't use Facebook, but uh, that. I'm told by people who, who did, that many of those people who were on the fringes of these um, Trump-supporting groups on Facebook knew that there was going to be some sort of attack on the Capitol building on January 6th. And so what we've ended up with is a political environment where these sorts of um, waves of misinformation are hyperventilated around the world on issues which should generate a shared set of facts based on science it's why it's taken so long for uh, climate change to become proper public policy and it is ludicrous that um, people who should know much better are actively debating the um, the um, efficacy and safety of vaccines, which have been delivered billions of times and have saved hundreds of millions of lives. This should not be a real debate in public. But it is because of these algorithms, these tools, which have um, become part of our world and have had real world consequences in those places where this was embedded and used and abused earlier and bigger and in a more widespread way than us so um, for example the vote of Britain took to leave the European Union Brexit and of course the vote for Donald Trump in the US presidential election which no one uh, sensible thought would actually happen did happen and there were real world consequences we're now bearing down the barrel of two years of a pandemic where it's clear that misinformation, public disharmony, a lack of trust in government, uh, a lack of social cohesion has cost millions of lives because we didn't do the basic things of getting as many people vaccinated as fast as possible and ensuring that public health measures like mask wearing were done for public health reasons and didn't become some mad subject of a hyper-partisan political debate. Then, of course, we have Brexit and the real world consequences there. Uh, trade and connections between Britain and Europe have been significantly damaged because of Brexit. And now we have a Prime Minister in Britain who's refusing to resign in the face of most of the public wanting to, him to, having demonstrated what those close to him have known for decades, that he's a serial liar uh, who couldn't run a government uh, in any competent uh, moral way for more than, a, more than a short period, and has proven that over a couple of years, and uh, should be removed. Just last night, for example, he decided to drop the mask-wearing requirements in Britain to keep his backbench MPs happy so that they wouldn't sack him. He's also planning to um, stop a tax increase because his backbench MPs don't want it, and he's also looking to launch a crackdown on people on benefits because that's what his backbench MPs want. That's just another example of how this torrent of misinformation, these tools that hyperventilate the sort of dangerous misinformation uh, out into the world have uh, changed our body politic. Now this shouldn't be too much of a surprise to people. We had the Christchurch attacks which we know were organised on these platforms were then amplified and used to increase the terror and serve the interests of the crazy ideas that the gunmen had. Facebook was the vector used to carry out this terror attack on an entire country and the the world really, apart from of course the horrible, horrible physical attack on uh, those uh, members of the the, um, mosques in Christchurch. We knew that the role of Facebook, in particular, but also YouTube and the various other platforms, platforms was substantial in the Christchurch attacks. And the Prime Minister initially uh, tried to uh, get Facebook and Google to change their ways to stop the sort of spread of uh, radicalised, hyperpartisan misinformation, disinformation, and. Uh, try to stop these sorts of um, uh, organisations and radicalisations of people online. She um, arranged the Christchurch call, which was designed as a self-regulatory approach where governments would engage with tech companies and the tech companies would magically do the right thing. Google to an extent has done, Facebook has not. You can still face the uh, live stream live on Facebook. And um, I'm sure you've all read the reports of the various moderators on Facebook who were there churning through all sorts of garbage and toxic and dangerous material, uh, missing most of it, of course. That's the world we live in. Now, um, why am I talking about this now? Given I, like most other people in New Zealand, Uh, who are in public life and in and around politics and the media have basically decided this is just a few crazy people who we can just mostly ignore and they'll go away by themselves. They won't. They're here and they're doing dangerous things. And the moment uh, this hit me was in the post-cabinet news conference on Tuesday. And this is a a fact and a little exchange that hasn't been publicised. It's in public. It's in the transcript of the Prime Minister's official post-cabinet record, and it's a little exchange between Radio New Zealand's uh, political editor and the Prime Minister, and Chris Hipkins, the education minister and COVID-19 minister. Hipkins was asked why there weren't more mass vaccination sites being set up in schools, seems a sensible thing we've just started the rollout of vaccinations for kids from 5 to 12 and it seems the most obvious efficient uh, way to do vaccinations is to set up vaccination centres inside schools so that when everyone turns up at school on the first day they can be routed through the vaccination centres of course um, with the approval of their parents to get vaccinated, this seems the fastest, most efficient, most easily controlled way to do it. And I, I had wondered why I hadn't seen much sign of it and not much talk about it. It dawned on me as Chris Hipkins was answering the question. Uh, he explained that you know not every school wanted to do this. And in some cases, it was better to um, use the pharmacy next door or for people to go to the medical center a couple of blocks down the road. But actually, one of the reasons it's not happening is that schools and teachers and vaccinators have already been subject to extreme anti-vax harassment, online, offline, real life, all sorts of abuse, violent attacks, all sorts of dumb things. For example, in Tai Raiwhiti, the East Coast, um, a bunch of anti-vaxxers were ringing up a a vaccination centre and booking uh, booking out the vaccination slots and and not turning up, effectively preventing other people from getting vaccines. Not to mention the various protests outside vaccination centres and the various abuses um, of those people who are trying to get vaccinated. Um, this is nuts. Why aren't we able to use our schools to vaccinate our children, to get vaccinated as fast as we can, to avoid this upcoming Omicron surge? We've done extraordinarily well, in large part because of the cohesiveness of our society, the initial competence of our government and the trust that we had in our government, the transparent way in which the government uh, communicated with us and we all organised together as the, quote, team of five million to... um, try to stop uh, uh, COVID from getting around the country. It's here now, and there's obviously going to be a major outbreak. But, and we're, we're lucky in that our vaccination rates are relatively high, and so are our booster rates, which is, seems to have blunted the initial takeoff. But the faster we can get everyone vaccinated, the better, particularly our kids, who um, tend to move around a lot, and fantastic at spreading it, even if they're asymptomatic. Yet, our government is so scared of anti-vaxxers, not just scared, aware that there are real-world attacks and violence and harassment going on from people who are, in theory, part of our community, who are outraged that the government wants to give them a free vaccine that will keep them alive, knowing, they should know, that if they get sick with COVID, and many will, they'll probably clog up and overwhelm our hospital system in a way that means the rest of us, the 96% who have had had our first dose, won't be able to get our cancer tests. We won't be able to get the ambulances. There'll be people pushed out of hospital sooner than they should. There will be real-world consequences for the lack of cohesion and the lack of sensible, fact-based, science-based behaviour that a significant portion of New Zealanders don't have now, thanks to the hyperventilated, amplified misinformation that's turning up on their news-free feeds that they're consuming day in, day out. Because the algorithm designers and the social networks have built these machines, gamified them, to make them addictive. And it's worked. And it's completely warped the neural networks of our democracy, and not just ours, other Western democracies. There's a reason China turned off the internet, will not let Facebook and Twitter operate in China, because they know that it could have long-term social and political uh, implications that mean that stability is disrupted, that um, public health will be endangered, and it has. So... We're at this point now where a group of people operating off misinformation hyped up to the max, are stopping us from responding properly with our own vaccinations of our own kids, are threatening to murder politicians and journalists, and nothing much has happened. The general response has been to just accept it, just hope it goes away. Well, it's not going to go away. And I note that this morning, on Thursday morning, the police have finally started to uh, treat this as the uh, public disorder that is a threat to us, that it is. I think that the way that these algorithms have warped the neural networks of our democratic landscape is actually a national security threat, a threat to our national health and well-being that needs to be understood and regulated. Now we do actually understand quite a bit of this. I have put into the article that's been sent out as an email and that's available for all to read, included a report by uh, a British Institute uh, that looks into radicalization online. It's a report into the New Zealand activities of extremists online in New Zealand, how they're connected to international groups which shows that we are not immune to the sorts of extremism and nuttiness that we've seen all around the world that has real-world impacts. I think our government should look, as many other governments are, at regulating these algorithms to stop the mad ranters on the corners of the town square being able to inject that misinformation and disinformation into the feeds of millions of people. Now, there's been various attempts to try to, you know, shut down accounts and stop this going on. Neil Young's protested against Spotify for running Joey Rogan, and we've all seen that. But actually, it's not the publication of this material that's the problem. It's the amplification and the insertion and the hyping up that the algorithms do to turn this piece of noise into something that actually warps our democracy. And that is a real thing, and these big tech companies are going to have to be made accountable for those algorithms, make them public, show that they are not hyping up the worst parts of our human nature, and that they are not... Uh, um, effectively damaging the body public with this toxic stream of misinformation and disinformation. So um, I think we should regulate those algorithms, regulate these tech companies, treat them and the algorithms and the information on there as national security threats and make sure that in future um, we have some control over this. Otherwise, we will again have nutty responses to pandemics and various other things, climate change. That is damaging to our society. When people threaten the public safety and the health of our entire society, we act. We have police forces and military and security services and um, cyber defence organisations to help us ha, help help defend us against these threats from outside, and what has happened in the last couple of weeks should be treated as a national security threat. I think. I'm Bernard Hickey. I'd like to thank all of the um, paid subscribers to the Kaka for. Um, supporting the work that I do with my uh, explanatory and um, uh, uh, investigative journalism on issues of climate change, housing affordability and child poverty. In this case, this isn't specifically about those, but as we've seen, this is a health crisis, a national health crisis, and in many ways though <clears throat> those three areas that I've talked about are dependent on a functional and insane political environment. Kakite anu. I'm Bernard Hickey with a podcast on the Kaka. It is Thursday, this Thursday, February the tenth.